Hi, everyone. Welcome back. It's time for another episode of Pep Talk, AASA's Education Policy Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Noelle Ellerson-Ng, and I am AASA's Associate Executive Director for Policy and Advocacy. If it's your first time tuning in, thanks for joining us. Here at Pep Talk, we cover all things that could be remotely labeled as edgy policy. All shows are available for download under the Pep Talk landing page on the AASA website. Looking ahead, if you have a show idea or guest you think we should have on, shoot me a note, nellerson at aasa.org, or on Twitter at noellerson. Our latest episode, which you'll hear next, is with Nora Gordon, an economist and associate professor at the Georgetown University McCourt School of Public Policy. Nora's research focuses on American education policy with an emphasis on the federal role in elementary and secondary education. She has studied the distributional impacts of Title I, fiscal rules governing federal education grants, the community eligibility provision, state school finance reforms, causes and consequences of school desegregation, and school district consolidation. I enjoyed this conversation with Nora because I always enjoy a conversation with Nora, but this one in particular because they touch on a critical issue that I think will be a sleeper issue for many school districts, the importance of a robust, accurate census count in 2020 and what it means for schools. I am thankful to introduce you all to Nora as her research is really critical to informing some very relevant conversations at the federal level but most importantly, because her research is accessible, applicable, and understandable. I hope you enjoy this episode, and thank you for listening. Nora Gordon is an economist and associate professor at the Georgetown University McCourt School of Public Policy. She's been a longtime colleague, mentor, and friend, and I'm very thankful for her endless patience to help me understand and think through some of the very nuanced, complicated edu policies that she seems to relish. Nora, I know that your schedule is always jam-packed and that you're on sabbatical right now, so thank you very much for making the time to talk with us. Thanks for having me, Noelle, and thank you for that lovely intro. It's pretty lovely. I mastered a lot of that through cut and paste from the Georgetown website, but the stuff about <laughs> you being a colleague and mentor is very true and very genuine. But yes, uh, you have a very thorough and appropriate biography on your website. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Okay. So for our listeners, can you give us an elevator speech on what an education or economics professor does? What's your day to day besides answering emails and educating out with people like me? <laughs> um, well, as you mentioned, I am on sabbatical right now. So it's a little different. I have a totally different schedule during the semester and not during the semester slash on sabbatical. But the regular semester schedule, um, I usually teach two classes um, during the semester. So I prep my classes, teach my classes, have office hours, I review student work, do a lot of email. Um, I meet with students, meet with other faculty members, um, ideally in smaller meetings rather than larger meetings, which is my preference. Um, and then I do research and I have you know sort of a bunch of different projects that will be in different stages so uh, some of my research time um, involves kind of digging for data or supervising research assistants as they're working on data and or writing 
the paper, revising the paper. It's a long process. And then I also have, in recent years, gotten interested in doing a lot of non-academic writing, which um, I don't know if I would put that in a research bucket, put that in a service bucket, but I've decided I'm just going to do it and enjoy it. Um, so for that, I also spend time trying to follow education policy, reading things like my morning education email, um, using Twitter to some limited extent, trying to monitor my Twitter intake. Um, but that's a really important way that I stay on top of what questions are like. Great. And what I really like about the answer is how much you talked about the research part of your work, which is relevant when you're on sabbatical, but in particular, the distinction you drew between your research and your non-research oriented writing. So I want to start with a softer question because I like to ask my guests some of the same types of questions. What's the favorite thing you've done or what was a highlight of your career? So for you, Nora, what's the favorite paper you've written or because I'm always bad at what's your favorite. I like to have a top three. What would you describe as your favorite topic if you don't have a favorite paper? I thought about that question before we talked, and it's a hard question. I think right now my favorite paper is one that I wrote a couple of years ago with my longtime collaborator, Sarah Reber, who's at UCLA. And uh, it was a paper looking at what Title I regulations and fiscal rules mean on the ground. And I really enjoyed writing that paper because it was totally different than anything that I had done before. Economists often work with big data sets and you're doing statistical analysis. And this was such a fun project for me because I got to interview a bunch of people who work in state education agencies and work in school districts about how they perceived the rules and how the rules affected how they spent their money. So it was just a super fun project. Well, and I think that makes it pretty clear to the audience why you and I might be so chummy and friendly because you were asked to reflect on your entire career and body of writing and you picked something as fun as Title I. So, <laughs> good job. <laughs> Thanks. Right? Well, I'm, I'm very proud of this. I've, I'm waiting for some research related to Title I, so that was a good answer. Now, a couple episodes ago, we had education reporters Allison Klein and Lauren Camera on as guests, and I had asked them a question about audience and readers. And I actually, it occurred to me that I wanted to ask you the same question because you're writing just as much as they are, maybe not as frequently. So my question to you is, how would you describe your core audience and your core readers with the clarification that, that maybe your research has a little bit of a different audience or core reader than the writing you might do for your classroom, than you might do for your non-research writing. Yeah, I feel like I have very segmented audiences that I'm writing for. In my academic writing, even there's different groups because sometimes I'm writing, I'm trained as an economist. And so if I'm writing something that's more of an economics frame on something that I think I want to submit to an economics journal, then I'll be writing to that audience. And even within that audience, is this something that's for public finance economists or for labor economists? Uh, if I'm writing for something that I think education policy researchers are going to be interested in reading, then that's a different frame. And then in the non-academic writing, it's a, it's a totally different frame, but it's something that as I've done more and more non-academic writing, I've really had to pay attention to who exactly is my audience for each piece and thinking, is this for 
um, somebody who is following policy at the federal level or in states or in a particular state or in districts. Um, so I think, I, I don't know if I can even say I have a core audience, but it's definitely somebody who likes um, details. <laughs> <laughs> Again, and that's why you have a willing audience here at AASA. When you talk about how you think about the multiple audiences that you write for, I actually think about a parallel to my job. So in my advocacy role, relationships matter. And so with relationships being key to me as an advocate, my relationships with the AASA member, with other associations, with relationships on the Hill, relationships with reporters, What's the role of relationships in your work as a researcher, an economist, a policy geek? They're huge. They're so big in so many ways that I could never anticipate. I feel like lots of the big opportunities that I've gotten have come about through relationships and not in ways that you could have thought, oh, I should be investing in this particular relationship because it's going to take me down this path. Um, but just in ways that you never really imagine at the time. So one way these relationships are important for me is in just figuring out what I even want to work on as a research topic. I try to keep my research agenda pretty focused on things that could actually have an impact. And there are lots of things that, you know, I, I don't know what exactly is going on in school districts. I don't work in a school district, you know, and so it's great for me to think about what are the types of policy decisions that are even up for grabs at a given moment in time. And um, it, some of that I can get from reading things. And I read a lot of Allison's work and Lauren's work. And, but some of it also does come from relationships. And then also academic relationships have been really important to me. I Usually in my academic work, I rarely work by myself. Um, I have had many wonderful co-authors over the years. The relationships with my students have also been really important to my work. Um, I teach in a master's in public policy program at the McCourt School at Georgetown. I am fortunate to have really wonderful students. Sometimes they work for me as research assistants and I teach education policy classes that are usually small discussion-based classes and my students bring so much experience with them that I learn a lot from them. A great podcast guest starts answering the next question before it's even been asked, which is something you actually just stumbled into here, Nora. You, in the middle of the previous answer, you talked about how as a researcher, you are not a practitioner based in the schools, whether you're talking elementary or secondary level. And so really knowing what the pressing issues are isn't something you know firsthand. And so you rely on these relationships for that information. So as someone who is deeply researching, and I would argue also deeply engaged with education policy, if you say you're removed, how do you go about actually engaging? What is that process for you to decide to engage? It's such a hard question, and actually other researchers ask me this all the time. It's something that I struggled with a lot at the beginning of my career. I felt like it was hard to figure out how to kind of get in the game, and the main way is through those relationships, so how to make those relationships so someone's going to send you an email saying, here's something that's going on, do you want to weigh in? 
I think part of it just comes with establishing your reputation as a person who's willing to talk to people, to talk to people who aren't academics um, and answer questions that they have without necessarily seeking something in return. And one way that people um, can find you is if you're writing. Uh, and, you know, when I wanted to start doing more non-academic writing, I thought it would be a lot harder than it turned out to be to kind of break in, but it turns out lots of people are looking for content. And so, you know, you can do guest blogging and op-eds and stuff like that. So that's, I guess, sort of how I, I started was doing some of the writing and then through the writing, meeting people. And I have met a lot of people with Twitter, which feels weird huh. to say, but there's yeah. lots of people that I met on Twitter and now I know them in real life and, you know, consider them somebody I have an actual relationship with. Well, I think we met geeking out over something related to supplement, not to plant, but we were also friends on Twitter and now we're colleagues in real life. So thank you, Twitter, for making me friends with Nora Gordon. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. But as flippant as we want to be about Twitter, I will say without hesitation that Twitter transformed, and that's not a value judgment, but transformed the volume of news I have access to and the scope of news I have access to. And for better or worse, I have I as a Twitter member have complete control over how much of my Twitter feed is a vacuum or diverse in opinion. So I absolutely do think that Twitter is a net value add to the volume and types of information that I have. And I do think that it helps with my relationships with superintendents because there are some that I engage with only on Twitter. That said, it's not the end all be all. It's not a single tool. So yes, that's our little Twitter, Twitter tangent. But I want to <laughs> go back to something you talked about in your response to how you engage in education policy, because it was fascinating for me to hear you say that it was easier than you thought it would be to get writing gigs in the non-academic realm. Nora, when you are a good writer who can take dense federal education policy and make it applicable and accessible, you will always be in high demand. And it's a skill set. It absolutely is. So it's not as if it's super easy to find that work, but when you are able to help translate that or make, make that garbledy understandable, there will always be demand. I mean, you've done guest writing for us here at AASA because your ability to boil down the gut of the argument or the policy issue into something that's not just understandable, but also concise, you're very mindful of how much time your audience does or doesn't have to really get into the weeds or stay more at the 30,000 foot level. So maybe it was easier than you thought, but you're also very good at it. <laughs> so well, there we go. Uh, thank you for that. But I really hope that other academics are listening to this because when you're an academic, you get used to having your writing rejected so much. It's just this part of this peer review process and everything takes forever and you never really anything, expect anything to hit right away. At best, you're going to have a revise and resubmit. And so it's a very different mindset to get into. Um, and it, it can seem quite daunting. And I think also academics often feel like the stuff they know is obvious just because everyone they're talking to knows this or they think that something is not a research result, but it's more of a descriptive statistic, but it's a descriptive statistic that not everybody knows. And so there's still a benefit in sharing that. 
Absolutely. And that's actually a clarification I hadn't considered how often you guys might actually be dealing with your writing not being accepted. It's not that we in the association world are taking everybody that comes to us. We just are a little bit more accessible than maybe some publications. That's cool and fine. (laughs) (laughs) It, It works to our benefit. So I want to pivot and ask one of my favorite questions that I like to pose to my guests. Uh, kind of personalizes my fellow edu-geeks. So I want you to tell me your favorite edu-geek moment. Have you ever fangirled over an opportunity your work afforded you? A specific interview, a specific paper, a presentation, your thesis defense. What was your top edu-geek moment, Nora? My top edu-geek moment was definitely when I got to testify at a Senate hearing Supplement, not supplement. Yes, that is so cool. Okay. Uh, Which, um, it was very exciting. I mean, you go to the Hill all the time, I'm sure, but I don't. And it was just really cool to be there with senators, talking to them, and also having the sense of my opinion is now part of the legal record. That felt really neat because... As an academic, you never really know what the impact of your work is. And I mean, you testify at a hearing, you still don't know what the impact of your work is, but at least you know your work is on the record. Um, I also got to be on Morning Edition talking to Corey Turner, which was super fun. I think I said something like one sentence, um, but radio is fun because then you hear from people and you know your parents' friends and stuff get to hear you on the radio. So. I enjoyed that a lot also. Yeah, and then when your friends hear you, if they hear you on radio or see you on TV or catch a glimpse of you on C-SPAN, because that's the coolest TV channel there is, then you start appearing on people's Twitter and Facebook feeds, right? Don't your friends tag you in things when they hear you because they're proud? Yes, exactly. Yes. So, so <laughs> that was our pivot to some of the, the lighter content. So now I want to turn to the actual issue why I wanted to invite you today. And I teased it out a little bit in the introduction, and this is the issue of the 2020 census. So I've known you for several years and have really appreciated how much I've learned from you. I believe we first met, as I mentioned before, during the supplement, not supplant, negotiated rulemaking during the Obama administration, summer of 2016. We've since moved on to other equally riveting education policy debates, and that is what I really want to spend some time on today, census and schools. At the surface, I'm not sure people really understand why why or how much of our day-to-day lives, both yours and mine, and that of the superintendents that we represent, especially in the context of their work with schools, is impacted by the census. So I'm going to ask two levels of the next question, and I want the first one to be really top level in your answer, more 30,000 foot. What do listeners need to know about the census and why it matters for education? The main thing is that federal funds are apportioned based on child population counts that come from the census. And it doesn't matter for a district who answers the census or which kids are reported. It matters how many kids are reported in the census. Um, It matters for IDEA. It matters for Title I. And even though there are annual population estimates that get updated year to year using other data sources to try to figure out population growth so you don't have to wait 10 years to 
get more money if you've had population growth. Those growth rates are applied to the decennial counts. And so if you're missing kids there, it's you don't completely make up for it with a growth rate. Your annual adjustments through a tool that is called the Annual American Community Survey, which has admittedly gotten much better in quality. Those adjustments are only as good as the foundation or data set that they're updating. And that's part of the reason here, right? That's right. And so those updates could come from other sources also, like IRS data, other administrative data. And they're looking at what's the year-to-year change from those data sources. So then maybe they're saying, okay, you have a 2% growth rate or a 1% population decline. And that change is still applied to the decennial baseline. Okay, so I'm already super engaged in this space just on what your answer was now, but now I want to add on a little bit of the politics because it wouldn't be 2019 if we didn't have big P and little p politics at play as it relates to census. And we should note that the census has been required as a 10-year study since the founding of the, the Constitution. It is in there. It is a core responsibility. So currently, there is debate about inclusion of a question related to citizenship on the census. AASA filed an amicus brief, and an amicus brief is just a friend of the court brief uh, that any individual or organization can file for their side of the argument with the court, and it will be taken under advisement or consumption by the justices and referred to or whatever. So we filed an amicus brief with other national education organizations, including the school boards, expressing concern that inclusion of the question will suppress participation and will result in underrepresentation of certain populations at particular detriment to our schools. So unpacking that sentence a little bit, while we don't have a technical or expertise opinion on the substance or inclusion of the question, we do have a strong arm in the fight over the consequence of the inclusion of that question and the perception that by including it in the census, certain populations won't want to reply, and it will result in an undercount. And specific to us, that underrepresentation will disproportionately include people, children under five, people of color, people in poverty, and immigrants. And the census isn't a study or a sample or a report on citizens. It's a report on the people living in America. And so the inclusion of immigrants becomes important uh, because that's by definition what's supposed to be included. So can you answer the same question above, and I'll put in the caveat that all of that politicization was of AASA position and that Nora Gordon is officially neutral on some of this stuff, but can you answer the same question about what do listeners need to know about the census and why it matters for education, but in the context of the 2020 political considerations and pressures? Sure. So... I actually just uh, testified this fall as an expert in one of the many court cases going on about that citizenship question, and there was just an opinion issued um, and at the beginning of April on that in the Maryland case um, that will be with the other cases going to the Supreme Court soon. And I, again, my expertise is not about how any particular question would change a response rate because I'm not a survey researcher, but if there were some decline in the response rate or if you had a differential undercount of certain groups, 
you know, how that would affect Title I funding flowing to particular districts. That was what um, I was asked to produce in my expert report for the plaintiffs in that case. And there were plaintiffs from, you know, about 100 different districts that were involved in the case. And what you could see is that in many of those districts, in the majority of those districts, they would be losing money from this change. And the really important thing to keep in mind with all of these federal programs is that they are not fully funded. So it's a zero-sum game. There's going to be winners and losers when you change anything about these population counts. It's not as straightforward as you might think to figure out who the winners and losers are going to be, particularly with Title I because the formulas are so complicated. So that's a caveat there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, let's have a whole podcast on the education finance incentive grant. Um, I'm sure there would be I will. At least I'm going to hold you to that. Maybe there'll we'll be two whole about. listeners to that podcast, Noel, me and you. No, I have faith. But anyways, continue with your sense of stuff. We'll just leave them there with that teaser <laughs> for our upcoming big podcast. <laughs> for sure. Well, I guess what I would just add to that is that when I was preparing the report for that court case, I used an undercount scenario that was provided to me by the legal counsel in the, in the case. And um, in the, the judge's opinion in the case, was that I was using a conservative undercount estimate, thinking about what the undercount stemming from a citizenship question might be, that my estimate was conservative relative to others that survey researchers have produced. So if you are in a school district or you're thinking about this at the state policy level, I guess the main thing that you need to know is that it really is important to have everybody counted. And at, at the risk of making a statement that's beyond the scope of perhaps a, a more normal conversation, regardless of how you feel on some of these issues, the population that these districts have a legal responsibility to educate students who might be here legally or illegally, they are there whether or not the dollars and resources show up. And when you talk in particular about the needier populations, those who qualify for poverty or those who, who live in poverty or those are, who are students with disabilities or students who are English language learners or students who have Medicaid needs and Medicaid eligibility, if they don't identify as present in your community, your community can never claim them as part of the population that you have to serve. And so, it becomes a little bit of an unfunded burden because your community still exists with that demographic, but the resources for which they qualify aren't able to flow appropriately. So, yes, and then also saying that a lot of these programs, it really matters that you have the full child population count, not the count by any subgroup, not just a, a poverty count because what that poverty count comes from is the population count that's coming from census mm -hmm. times a child poverty rate that's coming from a different data source. So mm -hmm. the, the census piece is, you know, it spills over and affects everything else. Um, and it's not an issue of do, 
any, you know, does any particular group of children get counted and how would that matter for the different categorical funds? It's really about this overall child population count that spills over and affects all of the funding streams. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a matter of stand up and be counted. And that, that's what we're pushing for. So I want to, and you saw this, and I bet you chuckled when you saw where my next question is going. And I'm making a very obvious parallel to education. So census is every 10 years. Here we go. And you could think of census as the ultimate high stakes test, right? If we get it correct, I hear you chuckling, with robust engagement and an accurate account of who's in the country and where they live and their demographics, our systems will run more efficiently, dollars and supports will theoretically flow as intended to the appropriate population. But isn't the census even bigger than that in that this is a once every 10 years assessment? One wrong answer or one undercount can impact a city, county, state, region for a decade. So what are some of the considerations and consequences that come from failing to show up and participate in this ultimate high stakes assessment? Right. So as we covered before, if people aren't getting counted, these annual population estimates are going to be off. So maybe the growth rate will be right, but they're not going to get to the right number. And this matters for education programs we've talked about, but it also matters for other things. It matters for Medicaid. It matters for transportation funding. Um, it matters for lots of federal money that impacts kids in a lot of different ways. I mean, it matters for who represents you in Congress. When we get down to the House level, you can lose a seat or have your district redrawn based on what the census population says, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, and so yeah, we're here in our little edu-geek lane, but it is bigger than just education. I mean, this impacts Medicaid and Medicare and a lot of those broader federal programs. Uh, it, it spans the government. I mean, in a, in a part, census feels like a backbone driving element of federal, state, and local, I guess, all government support. It makes sense, as you said, that it was in the Constitution, because if you're thinking about having any kind of proportionate representation, then you need to have a complete enumeration, which is what the census is meant to be. Hashtag complete enumeration. I think when I publish this episode, I'm going to use that hashtag if I can remember. Nice. So, um, okay, uh, we've wrapped up the specifics that I wanted to talk about as it relates to census. But since you've come fresh off of a court case and you're writing about this, and I've seen some of your writing, is there any question or aspect of census in schools or census in education that I didn't flag, that I didn't bring up, that you want to share for our listeners? I think we pretty much got it. Okay. And count everyone. Count everyone. Yeah. So I think also as we go through the rest of 2019, I've been really fascinated to see some of the other players step up on this. So I was at a great event at Brookings Institution earlier this month, and they're doing really good work around cities and mayors and towns and what census means to them and just some of the considerations. And I mean, going on a tangent here, one of the things I'm thinking about, and we've talked about it internally at AASA, one aspect of the 2020 census is that it is the first census that will be primarily non-paper administered. So it will be tablet, computer, online. And that's really cool. But we have to be honest about equity and access to broadband and internet and devices, right? So thinking through that, 
what do you do for all the homes that don't have internet or a device? And what happens if that's a home that doesn't have a device that doesn't want to open the door to a census employee, fearing that it might be some other aspect of the federal government? How do you that? And we think about it at AASA because how many schools are perceived as a community resource? Can schools be a site of completion? Like just starting to think through that. What are the opportunities within communities and with these other associations to support robust participation in the census? It's really interesting to think about schools as a site of completion. Yeah. So I think it's a little bit outside the box. It's a conversation we're having. I mean, when you look at the program that drives and has single-handedly transformed internet connectivity in schools, it's E-Rate. And we do have clarification or permission for E-Rate connected devices to be available to the broader community after hours. And so it's just a matter of what do those conversations look like, both in terms of being able to make it happen, but also making sure communities understand that this isn't political, this is just supporting the civic engagement of the census. So that's something we're going to be really focused on in the coming months in this calendar year. And it's also important for listeners to know that while they're prioritizing the electronic access, there will be paper forms available. 2020 census, finally technology-centric. Uh, so this will be really interesting, and we'll, we'll follow that. So that was all also not part of the conversation I sent to Nora ahead of time. Our listeners are getting very familiar that while I prep our guests ahead of time, they all inevitably end up with a question they didn't get ahead of time. So thank you for your willingness to go there, Nora. No problem. We are wrapping up on our time together today, and I do have two closing questions that I like to ask all of our guests. So... First of all, more generally to this year in 2019, what story or research paper are you most anticipating or what education policy debate or push are you most looking forward to this year? Well, I have really been enjoying Emily Hanford's reporting on dyslexia and reading and seeing the traction that that has gained with a lot of really grassroots advocates. Um, And I've seen different local stories kind of trickling in on that. I think it's going to be a lot of stories at the local and state levels. And I don't know if anything will bubble up, but uh, I think it's a huge issue thinking about reading curriculum, um, professional development, and teacher education in reading instruction. And this is something that I hope it will be a story. I hope that there'll continue to be a lot of action on this. That's actually not one I predicted you talking about at all. And this is, again, why I'm so interested in what you're always thinking about, because it's sometimes something I haven't even put on my radar. So that is definitely not something I've heard other guests talk about. And do you see that playing out at the federal level, or do you see that being a little bit more state or local? Well... I definitely see it as a state and local issue because you're making these curriculum decisions. Um, I know that this is an issue Senator Cassidy is interested in, and Mm -hmm. there was a hearing shortly before the supplement not supplant hearing because when I was looking (laughs) on C-SPAN to see what does the hearing look like, that was the hearing that came up. Um, I don't know what the particular federal policy would be there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We'll just have to wait and see if there's anything federally. I mean, sometimes when you get enough traction or momentum or state policy is enough, you don't need a federal government role on all of these programs, short of maybe 
ensuring that programs are funded adequately, fully, and flexibly. There, I did my appropriations pitch. There you go. <laughs> or don't forget, IES could prioritize it because we can always have more research on any topic. That actually would be really kind of cool to see a little bit more on that coming out of IES. And for those of you who are listening, Nora, what is IES? The Institute of Education Sciences. It's the research arm of the Federal Department of Education. Mm -hmm. And they do great work. And we use a lot of their data in our analysis. A lot of their data informs the reporting and stuff that goes on on Capitol Hill. So more from IES is almost always a good thing. Okay, Nora, my last question to you is, after 2019 comes 2020, and we have a presidential election year. So what role do you foresee for education in the great 2020 election? And now is your time to either affirm or deny that you yourself are a candidate for president. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm still thinking about what this would mean for my family, Noel. Um, yes, I, <laughs> I won't be running myself. Uh, I'm really interested to see if people are talking about this in the election, I've already seen some candidates talking about teacher pay, which doesn't seem to me an obvious fit for federal policy when you're thinking about a bunch of contracts that are negotiated by uh, local or state governments. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not something that candidates will talk about and we might see some coverage on. I'm sure we'll see people talking about guns in schools. And one thing that I'm quite curious about is uh, I've seen a lot recently about childcare and affordable childcare as a policy issue. And there's always kind of this question of what is childcare and what is early childhood education and, you know, mm -hmm. when it's in an elementary school versus when it's in some other setting, if you're three or if you're four or, you know, and um, that's something I'm kind of curious to see if there's traction on that issue um, and how it relates to public schools and other um, early childhood education providers. So going off on a tangent, that is one of those things that I just happened to think about. When we talk about early ed and child care, that's where we sometimes get into tax credit conversations or supports for home care or Head Start, Child Care Development Block Grant, daycares, just making sure there's enough high quality seats that are affordable and how that can impact whether a family chooses to have another parent in the workforce, can they afford it? One specific slice that comes a little bit after that is this conversation of universal pre-K, right? And we haven't necessarily heard that talked about in 2020, but something I wanna put out there for listeners is, Universal pre-K at the federal level could be, it's an interesting conversation, but you have to think about how that plays out. We don't have universally required kindergarten. Not every state requires a child to go to kindergarten. So if you have universal pre-K, but not every state requires universal K, can you then require universal pre-K? And I don't think the federal government would require it. But if you're a state that doesn't do universal K, are you going to jump down and do universal pre-K? And if you're a state that doesn't do universal pre-K, you're missing out on a potentially sizable source of funding for early education programming. So that's just something that I haven't been able to get an answer to, but it's really interesting to think about because that's one of those instances where it's a state and local decision about whether or not kindergarten is required 
And how does that line up with other things like universal pre-K, right? Right. That's very interesting. I mean, I wonder if it would come with any kind of incentives if you were going to do something like, say, we have these grants for universal pre-K. And would you, I mean, what what if you had a full day universal pre-K and then you had a half day K, right? <laughs> how would that count? I don't know. There's a lot of details in there. Yeah, I don't even know. And that could be an entire political campaign. I would love if someone ran for president on an education platform, but we won't hold our breath. So I am looking at our timestamp and Nora, we are well into this conversation and I appreciate all of your time today. For our listeners still tuning in, we've been lucky enough to be joined by Nora Gordon, who is an economist and associate professor at Georgetown University working in their McCourt School of Public Policy. She's a longtime friend and colleague to me in AASA, and she was kind enough to take time to talk to us today about a variety of education issues, but perhaps most relevant to what's coming up in the next year or two through 2020 is the role of census in education. You can follow Nora online at Twitter. Her handle is at Nora E. Gordon. Nora, thanks again for taking the time to be with us today. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. Thanks for having me, Noelle. Hashtag complete enumeration. <laughs>